Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Hill City Church in Springfield, Missouri. We are a community of believers who exist to glorify God by making disciples who bring gospel restoration to our city and world. For more information about Hill City or to support our ministry, you can find us online at hillcitysgf.org. Awesome. One, one of the cool things, one of our city groups uh, is stepping up, and it's really cool. So in this new year, one of the things we're doing is restructuring our student ministry. We've been having the middle school and high school all meet together on Wednesday nights. Well, now the high school is going to meet here on Wednesday nights together, and uh, Hayden and Jessica are still leading that. And then the middle school are going to meet on Sunday nights at a facility kind of south of town. And one of our city groups is stepping up and going to lead that whole middle school area. It's really cool. They're going to do it together. Some of you are going to get involved. They're actually in the very back. Way to set a good example, you guys, in the very back corner. Uh, not involved up here with the rest of the congregation, but do your thing back there. Uh, no, they're, they're, they're awesome, and they're going to they're gonna jump in and leave middle school. So parents, here's the deal. If you have high schoolers, middle schoolers, now is a good time to jump in because we are restructuring everything, so everyone's new right now. If you would like to have information on getting your students involved in our, in our student ministry, on the way out, talk to the check-in table. They'll get your number, and one of our youth folks will give you a call to help you get uh, connected there. Okay, you guys ready to jump into Luke? I, I want some enthusiasm. Let's go. Come on. All right. Thank, hey, it's the most wonderful time of the year. Christmas is over. We have much to be thankful for around here. All right, come on. Luke chapter 11, verse 37 is where we're going to start. If you'd like to read the scripture with us. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first walk wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness, you fools. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb, and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisee, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you, lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Awesome. Jump into a story here. And this is, this is a, a story that we've seen. If you read the book of Matthew, it's in Matthew also. I'd encourage you to read that. Matthew actually goes into more detail here. But it's another story of Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees. Okay, now here's the temptation when we jump into a story like this. The temptation is to make the Pharisees bad guys and to sit in the judgment seat and say, oh yeah, boy, these bad Pharisees, I'm glad I'm not like them. That's the danger. Because the reality is the Pharisees a whole, as a whole are not bad guys. And the reality is that you and I are very much just like them. And as we talk today, you're going to see that we have a lot of Pharisaic, Pharisaical blood running through our veins. This morning. But remember, the Pharisees are this group of people that started 100, 150 years before Jesus out of this, this group of Israelites that are serious about keeping Israel faithful. So, so if you remember the story of Israel, they were called to follow God. They had some good years and some bad years. They had some times when they made huge mistakes and they got taken out into exile. And the last time they were in exile from Babylon, they came back to Israel and started rebuilding the temple and the walls and, and, and their, whole, their whole thing here, there's a group of Israelites that said, like, listen, we must keep Israel faithful. We must keep us focused on God. And they became very passionate and zealous. And it's out of these groups of people that emerged the Pharisees. And this was a party, a group of men, and their job were to be guides, was to be guides to the people of Israel to keep them focused on Yahweh. They did not want to make the mistakes of the past generations and Israel to walk away from God. That's where they started. So they're not bad, and especially in their intent and the way they began, it came from good things. But the problem with the Pharisees is in their job as trying to keep Israel faithful, they went too far. 
and they actually changed the focus. So let me say it like this. How many of you guys have ever been to like Yellowstone or one of those national parks? Really? You guys need to travel more. Is that it? Yeah, if you go to one of our national parks, especially one of those places with really beautiful scenes, the Grand Canyon, one of the things you'll see is because, because the, 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 the view is beautiful and, and the mountains and all these things are, are awesome, but there's also a lot of danger there, right? There's actually a whole series of books, like one is called Death in Yellowstone, about all the people that die being really stupid in Yellowstone. Hey, there's a pool of hot water. Let's jump in. Um, so if you go to Yellowstone, one of the things you'll find, or Grand Canyon, you'll find railings that keep you safe. They keep you away from obstacles and things that will kill you. Right, and so, so like if you go to one of these and there's a huge drop-off, they have a fence or like a little railing that kind of keeps you from getting to the edge and saying, oh, I wonder what's down here. It's really funny, the first gathering, right at this point, I tripped on my rug and almost fell off the stage on accident. But that's what the rail's for, right? To keep you from falling down. But imagine if you go to a national park and you have a group of overzealous uh, workers at the park and to keep you from falling off the edge, they don't just put a rail here. They actually put a rail here, and then another rail here, and then a rail here. And then they build a big wall because they don't want anyone to ever fall off the edge. And pretty soon you can't even see the beauty of the creation that you came to see. It becomes about the wall. It becomes about the barrier. Now, if you've ever been to a park like this, there's always the idiot guys that go over that railing and and to refuse all the signs, right? When that happens, you just walk away because you don't want to be there for what's about to take place. There's always that group. So imagine, though, you go to this park and there's walls and barriers so much that you can't even see. Here's the reality. That's what the Pharisees did. Their intent was good, at least at the beginning, to keep Israel from falling off the cliff and to help them enjoy this beautiful relationship with God. But over time, they built so many railings and walls, that the whole thing became about the wall and the barriers and the guidelines and the rules, and they missed the beauty. So again, as we jump in, let's understand the Pharisees. They weren't just all these bad people that say, we don't love God, we're going to, no. They thought they were doing well, but they got off track. Let's jump into the story. So while Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went and reclined at the table. One of the things I love about Jesus is he will eat with anyone. Even you'll see, he, he knows who this Pharisee is. He knows that this guy is really off track, but he accepts an invitation to come to a meal. In a Jewish culture, to go and eat a meal with someone is to acknowledge, like, I'm accepting you. So Jesus goes to eat a meal, and the Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash his hands before dinner. Now, this is not about cleanliness. It's not about germs. The Pharisee's not like, oh my gosh, Jesus is going to get us all sick because he didn't wash his hands, right? Because Jesus did pull out his antibacterial stuff and put it on. No, this is about religion. This is about being ceremonial, clean or unclean. Okay, so when, when Jesus refuses to wash his hands, here's what Jesus is doing. He is refusing to follow these boundaries, these guide rails that they had put in place. See, this, this law that they had about washing your hands in this certain way before dinner was not in the Bible. It was not a law given by God. It was what's called the, the oral law. So in, a fair, in, in the, just time with the Jews, you had the written law, the law of God, the Old Testament, and you had the oral law. The oral law was all these rules and guidelines that the leaders of Israel had put in place so they thought to keep people safe. Well, this idea of washing your hands in a certain way was one of those extra laws they had given, one of those oral laws. And so Jesus comes to this dinner. The Pharisee knows that Jesus is a teacher that claims to be from God. He's expecting Jesus to perfectly follow the law just like he does. And when Jesus doesn't wash his hands, it is a big deal. And it says here that the Pharisee, Pharisee he's astonished. He can't believe that a teacher of God, what he thinks a prophet coming from God would not do this. Well, Jesus picks up on this astonishment. We don't know. We don't know if the Pharisee make a big deal. Oh my gosh, what? we don't know what happens. But somehow Jesus picks up on the Pharisee's disapproval of him not 
following these rules. And Jesus jumps, jumps in to a conversation with him. Verse 39. And again, Matthew has a larger account of this. I'd encourage you to read Matthew's account. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees, you cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but on the inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? Like, you can't just focus on the outside, guys. But as you... You give alms to those that are within, and behold, everything is clean. But, sorry, but give as alms to those things that are within. Like, look at the inside, and then behold, everything is clean for you. So here's what Jesus did. He jumps into a series of woes. Now, this, this word woe, you'll see it over and over and over here. It's a Greek word that really doesn't even have a, a word tied to it. It's more of a sound. It's like, oh. It's like this deep sadness, this like you're missing it, this maybe a little bit of a disgust, this frustration for it's like this, oh, this woe. Woe to you Pharisees. And Jesus jumps in. There's several woes that Jesus is going to pronounce over them. And the first one, Jesus shares a metaphor. He says, Pharisees, like this is what you are. You're like a cup. And on the outside, that cup looks really, really good and really clean. But on the inside, it's disgusting. And you're just like that cup. It's like in high school when I was riding around with my buddies and one of my friends chewed, was spitting into a cup, and one of my other friends thought it was his cup and took a big drink. That's exactly, that's exactly what Jesus, I think, wants us to feel, this idea of a cup looking really good, something looking really good on the outside, but on the inside, there's a different reality. And here's what Jesus says. Hey, Pharisee, that's you. On the outside, you look great. And every single person that you walk by, when they walk by you says, man, that guy, he's got it going on. That guy is a good moral person. That guy loves God. He says the outside is good. And, and notice Jesus acknowledges the outside is good. He says the inside, it's not clean. He keeps going, woe to you Pharisees, verse 39. For you tithe mint and rue and every herb, which are good things, right? To tithe, to give, I hope. We're here at Hill City, right? But you neglect justice and the love of God. See, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So can you imagine this Pharisee? He goes to buy some spices. He buys some oregano at the market. And he takes his bag of oregano home and he, and he gets out a scale and he measures out 10% of his oregano because that's what God wants from him. And he takes his 10% and probably walks to the streets like holding it up so everyone sees that he has his 10% to give. And he takes it to the temple and he gives his 10% of spices and thinks, man, look how good I am. I've done this. But on the way, he passes an orphan who's begging for food, and he's like, Psh. And he passes a widow, like, Psh, you're on your own. As a matter of fact, it's probably your fault you're like this. And he passes a woman who got caught committing adultery. He's like, stoner, killer. God says, Pharisee, like, to the nth degree, you have your guidelines and your rules, and you follow them so specifically, but you've missed the heart of God. And God has commanded them in his word over and over and over again that he cares about justice and mercy, not what they give. We could point to lots of scriptures. Hosea 6, 6, God says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, not your 10% of oregano, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. God's communicated, and this is Old Testament. This Pharisee had this memorized. He knew this passage. But he is so set on his system, his guidelines, his boundaries, what it looks like for him to follow God, that it's all about him and his 10% and not about God and justice and mercy 
Here's another passage, Micah 6.8. He has told you, O man, what is good. This is God has told you what's good. What does the Lord require of you? 10% of oregano? To do justice. To love kindness. To walk humbly with your God. See, at the heart of this pharisaical system is an emphasis on some things and a complete neglect of other things, the other things being what God really values. And so Jesus says, woe, woe to you, Pharisee. You're missing it. Verse 44, or 43, woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Like if a Pharisee would have been here this morning, they'd have been sitting right there in those little house seats where everyone could see them. Everyone could see how religious and how good they are. And I guarantee no one's ever sitting there now, right? Like right there, so that everyone can see them and to see how religious, how moral, how good, how approved by God they are. That's where they wanted to be. You look at Jesus, where do we find him? Humbly serving. Verse 44, woe to you, Pharisees. Here's another metaphor. For you are like unmarked grave. That's That's a grave where maybe the stone is removed so no one knows there's a grave there. And people walk all over them without even knowing it. So th- this is a bigger conversation. And, and to, if we were a Jewish crowd, we know what this meant. But to, to walk on a grave as a Jew meant that you were now unclean ceremonially. So you had to do this whole ritual to make yourself clean again. So an unmarked grave, a grave without a tombstone, is like the biggest danger of all because you walk across and not even know. And it's like, oh, no, what, like, what would happen then? Here's what Jesus is saying. Hey, Pharisee, that thing that you're trying to keep everyone from, you are that. Like you are the graves. I mean, it's, one, it's the most offensive thing Jesus could have said to him. Like the very thing you are trying not to do, you're actually doing. Now again, Here's the danger. We say, yeah, Pharisees are bad. Every time we see them, they're bad. But one of the things I've told you before, we want to make sure we remind ourselves, the Pharisees as a whole aren't bad. And I don't believe Jesus is pronouncing all Pharisees wicked here. As a matter of fact, one of the things you'll see as we read the Bible is there are actually Pharisees that come to faith in Christ and follow Jesus. So in the book of Acts, we, we, we see this. So here, here's the conversation that happens. So imagine growing up as a, as a Jewish believer With all these laws that you had to do, some of them were actually in the Old Testament. Circumcision was one of them. So to be a good, faithful Jew, if you have a a male son, one of the marks of that covenant was circumcision. And it was seen as, I've got to do this to, uh, to, to make my male child right with God. And so now when Jesus comes and and dies and resurrects and starts this new church, well, now there's this big discussion because all these Jewish believers that have been taught circumcision is mandatory. Well, now you have all these Gentile believers, non-Jews that start believing in Jesus. And so there's a discussion that takes place, right? So imagine that like altar call. Hey, come come to Christ down here. By the way, if you're a Gentile, it's a little surgery. We're going to do that off on the side. A little bit of a hindrance to people accepting Christ. Would you agree? Guys, come on. We're here. (laughs) Yeah. So this big dispute arises about this. Acts 15, verse 5, look at this. Some believers, notice the word believers, who belong to the party of the Pharisees. You see this. Not all the Pharisees were, many of the Pharisees trusted Christ. Nicodemus was one of those. They rose up and said, because this is what a good Pharisee does, it is necessary for Gentiles to be circumcised to keep the law of Moses. Here's a guideline. Let's have a new one. Well, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. Like, this is a big discussion they had to work through. And In verse 10, they kind of respond to these Pharisees. Why are you putting God to the test? By placing a yoke or a burden on the neck of the disciples, these Gentile disciples, that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. 
I love it. Here's what these apostles say. Hey, Pharisees, I I know you believe in Christ and I know that you're trying to do this. You're trying to be very faithful. But listen, don't put another barrier here because the generations before us couldn't follow your rules. That's what he just said. Like, don't add another thing here. Now, go back to our story. Can you imagine the scene at this dinner? You invited to dinner. It's a dinner with a Pharisee. And so, so think it's a big banquet hall, meeting hall, where, where probably there's one center table where a Pharisee and few of, a few of his party are there and probably Jesus and a couple of disciples and probably all around the room are different people kind of listening and watching. So it's kind of a public meal. Well, imagine what's happened here. You go to this dinner, here's Jesus with these Pharisees who you think are just, I mean, it. And Jesus just erupts on this like, whoa, awkward moment. Can you imagine what's happening here in in this situation? Well, verse 45 there's some other people here, and one of them are, is a lawyer. And a lawyer is someone who interprets the law of God, the, the, the Torah, the Old Testament. Well, one of the lawyers answered, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. So J- Jesus is ranting about these Pharisees and, and giving them woes. And a lawyer pipes up, because that's what lawyers do. Uh, love my lawyer friends in here. And he says, wait a second, Jesus, you're offending me too. Okay, side note. If you go to work this week and your boss comes in and he's kind of on a a rampage, like, why is this happening? Why is this? Why are we doing this? Don't speak. Just hide. Just go hide. And and he won't even know you're there. Well, this lawyer doesn't realize that. So he says, wait a second, Jesus, you offend me. And Jesus says, well, while I have you here, let's talk. (laughs) Verse 46. Woe to you lawyers also. Ouch, for you load people with burdens hard to bear. And you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. So he jumps on the lawyer too and says, hey, listen, the way you interpret God's law, you make it so burdensome that a normal everyday Israelite can't even get close to following God. And, and as I read and try to learn this Jewish history and understand that, like this is what you got to understand. Pretend you're Jews. You want, like in every part of your bones, you want to please God. You know that Yahweh is the God of your people. You want to follow Yahweh. But you have these leaders, these Pharisees. They have so many commands and rules for you that there is absolutely no way you can keep them. No way. Most of you are poor I'm not saying like you are, if you're a a Jew in those days, I know this front, most of you are poor, okay? (laughs) So they have all these rules about giving how much money you're supposed to give. Here's the reality, you can't afford it. Imagine if we said, hey, Hill City, if you want to be close to God, you got to have $1,000 every Sunday. You all are out. (laughs) Most of us are out, right? But that's what's happening. Can you imagine the burden? That an average everyday Israelite felt wanting to please God but knowing there's no way you can measure up. And that's what Jesus, that's where Jesus just groans. Woe. Woe to you leaders as you are killing the people who I love. So what do, we, what do we do with this passage? What do we do with this text? Because probably not many Pharisees here, and many of you wouldn't say, oh, I'm just, I'm just trying to, to kill. And do it. Here's the reality. Um, you and I are Pharisees. I know you may not have a big list of rules that you brought in, you're trying to pass that to everyone, but at some level, every single one of us have pharisaical blood running through us, religious, religion blood running through us. When I use the term religion, we talk about that a lot here, this idea of religion. When I say religion, it's this man-centered system of things you must do to earn God's favor. That's what religion is at its core. It's all man-centered. It's centered on a person and what I do. 
And it's toxic and it's evil and we will preach about it and talk about it every single week because at, every, at all kinds of levels, you and I have this religious pharisaical blood running through us. See, the gospel is about, what Je- about Jesus and what he has done. Religion is about me and what I do. It's man-centered. We say, like, so religion, maybe a little definition that we worked on this week. Man-centered, religion is man-centered performance-based system that says, quote, my action or what earns God's favor. That is religion. The gospel says, I receive God's favor by grace through faith, period. And these are opposite. They are opposed to one another. Every single one of us, and we're going to keep talking about this this morning, you're going to see this. Every single one of us has some sort of religion running through us. This idea that my standing with God is based on me. I can somehow get myself closer to God. Which the gospel says, no, you can't. All you can do is receive Christ's righteousness through faith. So here's a theological word. Um, Impute. Can you say that? Impute, imputed, or imputation. It's a doctrine. It's really important to understand. Here's what the gospel says. It's, It's a doctrine of imputation. To impute is to give what is yours to someone else, and therefore it becomes theirs. Say it again. To impute is to give something that is yours to someone else, and now that becomes theirs. That is the idea that the gospel is based on. Let, let me give you an example. I went to a friend's birthday party right before Christmas. And uh, it was at a restaurant that I normally don't get to go to, not because they don't let me in the door, but I just can't usually afford to go there. And I arrived at this friend's birthday party, and he says to me, hey, whatever you want, it's on me. <laughs> and I'm like, all right, all right. So I go to, so that opens me up to a whole different side of the menu that I normally get to order off of, right? Because when someone says that, it's like, yeah, filet mignon and Napa Valley, They'll go, they go together really well. Um, so I go to order, and here's what happens. The, the, the restaurant owner says, hey, your debt, my debt, is attributed to this person. Great day. Their credit is attributed to me, imputation. My debt is imputed to them. Their credit is imputed to me. That is the idea that the gospel is based on. So, so here's how it works. Adam's sin, the sin of Adam, the first human, was imputed to all of humanity. So when Adam sins, all of humanity is seen now as turning away from God. And we did turn away from him, and we do. Now, you're like, well, that's not fair. Well, here's the deal. When Jesus died... The sin that he died for was imputed, like our sin was imputed onto him. That's not fair either, but you want that one, don't you? Right? He got the Bible, he made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to be sin for us. Our sin was imputed onto Christ. Now, Christ's righteousness is now, for those that believe, imputed onto us. It's the doctrine of imputation, and that is what the gospel is all about. See, religion is all about, I get what I deserve. Hear me, guys, you don't want to play that game. What do you deserve? Hell. And so Jesus attacks this system. And what, like, I want us to make sure we understand, Jesus does not hate this person, this Pharisee. We don't know his name. I don't even think Jesus hates all Pharisees as a whole. But here's what Jesus hates. He hates a system that takes the focus off of God and puts it on self. That's what he hates. The system that the Pharisees created that was all about the rules and the barriers and, and the people missed the beauty of God. And Jesus ferociously attacks that. Religion at its, heart, at its heart takes the focus off of God and puts it on self, what I am doing. Here's what a guy uh, named John Calvin, you may have heard of him, um, wrote a long time ago. It's kind of old English, so I'll go slow. We maintain 
that whatever a man's work may be, that's religious work, he is regarded as righteous before God simply on the grounds of gratuitous mercy. I love that phrase. Without any respect to works. Freely adopts him in Christ by, here's our word, imputing the righteousness of Christ to him as if it were his own. Keep that up there for a second. Don't switch it yet. So he says, we, whatever our work may be, however good we think we are, the only way we receive the mercy of God is by Christ's righteousness being imputed to us by faith. Now he goes on. This we call the righteousness of faith. That is, when a man or woman, empty and drained of all confidence in works, of what I can do, feels convinced that the only grounds of his acceptance with God is a righteousness that is borrowed from Christ. How good is that? Like, that is the gospel. It's to have such little confidence in what you can do that you say, my only hope is to borrow Christ's righteousness, his tab. And to give him my tab, which is pretty filthy. That's the gospel. And religion is an attack against that because religion says, no, I can do it. I must earn it. I want my tab to count. My study, I found this. A guy named Tim Keller is a pastor. He wrote a book called Gospel in Life. I encourage you guys um, to look at that. Um, and read that. Here, here's some things he says about the difference between the religion and the gospel. He says, religion says, quote, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. The gospel says, I am accepted, therefore I obey. You see how the order's different? I obey, not trying to get myself close to God. No, I am invited in by faith, and now I obey. Next one, religion. Motivation is based on fear and insecurity. So the reason I do anything is in fear of being punished by God if I don't do it. The gospel, the motivation is based on grateful joy. So I see God's commands that he has for me as for his glory and for my good. And so there's a joy that comes in doing those. See, here's the thing about religion, and I can tell you this really clearly because I lived it for years, and I still do at times. To live a religion Christianity is to bounce between two poles, two extremes. One over here is I do good, right? I, I, I've had a pretty good week, and I get prideful, and I get uh, where I just kind of look down at other people. I can remember, I'm 23, 22, 23 years old. I went to college, like many of you students went to college and kind of was awakened to faith and started reading my Bible and learning and, and growing, but, but it was definitely a religious, like self-righteous thing. Well, I became very passionate, just like the, the Pharisees here. I remember going home to my hometown, went to play in an in a, uh, like alumni volleyball tournament, and I was sitting out kind of between games and watching some of my friends who I went to school with. And I ran with and was just, just like them. And I remember sitting back and being just like disgusted. Like, they are so like sinful. For real. Just judging. See, that's one extreme of religion. It makes you sit in this judgment seat like, you gotta be a little more better like me. But here's the other extreme. When you mess up, whew, shame. Right? You know the thing, that thing that you said you'd never do again, you promised God, okay, God, this is the last time, I promise I'll never do it again. When you do that thing again, all confidence goes out. Those are the poles that religion bounces you from, back and forth. See, here's what the gospel does. The gospel brings you right into the middle, and there's a humility that comes that's saying, that says, apart from Christ, I am nothing. But also, when I'm really messed up, I'm still accepted. That's the gospel. And if you look at Jesus, we can read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you look at the interactions he has, when he comes around people that are trying to impress him with how good they are, he just goes after them. 
Look, look at, here's one story. I can pull out a hundred stories. Matthew 9, and Jesus reclined at the table. He's at dinner again in the house. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners. Okay, people that were on the out, right? They're not in. They, they don't follow the, the laws like they're supposed to. Well, they came and reclined at Jesus, at the table of Jesus. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, how does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Like they are evil. How would he ever put himself there? Well, Jesus heard this. He said, those who are well, or those who think they're well, have no need for a physician. But those who are sick, like they do, come and learn what this means. And he quotes that Hosea passage we looked at. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came, to call, I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. See, anytime Jesus is around this type of thinking, that those who act bad, they're out. Look how good I am. I act good. He just attacks it. And again, he's not attacking the person. He's attacking a system, a belief statement. If you look at the letters the apostles wrote, all the New Testament, every single letter you find, there is this section in there where, where Paul or Peter, whoever it is, is, is really going after this belief of religion. They even crept into these early disciples. Galatians is all about this. The whole book of Galatians is Paul writing saying, hey, don't think that just by getting circumcised you're doing something. Here's what it'll say in Galatians 2.21. I do not nullify, cancel the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, through what I did, then Christ died for no purpose. Here's what, here's what Paul says. When we live in this religious mindset, if my actions get me to God, the cross is meaningless now. Right? If I can do it, Jesus died for nothing. He'll go on to say, he'll have hearts, more strong language as he goes on. Verse, chapter 5, verse 2. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision out of this idea to get yourself to God, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated now to keep the whole law. Here's what he says. If you're going to try to measure your righteousness by part of the law, you got to take the whole thing. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Do you hear his hard language? Like if you're trying to do something to get there, in this case circumcision, you have severed relationship with Christ. You've cut yourself off in Christ. And it is this like religious, pharisaical idea that Jesus so attacks. Here's what we got to know, guys. Religion can be so subtle. Like, none of you walked in here today. I don't think. Any of you walked in and said, boy, me going to church is going to get me to heaven today. I don't think you said that. We baptize people right here. We have some more coming up soon. Never once have I said, when I'm going to baptize someone, who do you trust for your salvation? Uh, You. They've never said that to me. Nor have I said, hey, who do you trust for your salvation? Me, right? I've never had that happen. they, They always say Jesus. So none of us would come out and say, oh yes, I get to God by what I do. But if we are honest with ourselves, we will see underneath the surface a bunch of things that that functionally we are doing to try to get ourselves to God. Like religion for us is the default mode. This is what Martin Luther said, that religion is the default mode of the human heart. Every single one of us has a default to center our faith around ourselves. So, again, most of you would say for your justification to be saved, to be made right with God, that comes through Christ. Would you say that? But the reality for many of us, how we live, what we say to, what we functionally say is, I may have been saved by grace through faith, but I got to keep myself in those good graces by what I do. There's a disconnect between what we theoretically think and believe to how we functionally act, every single one of us. Please don't sit here today and say, boy, I hope so-and-so heard this. I hope you heard this. Like as I was studying this, just even this week, guys, I was just like, oh man, like it's so easy to get off track here. If I do not reorient my heart all the time, like I will drift into religion every single time. 
So religious Christians, I'll use that term, religious quote Christians, look to God as their helper and guide, but ultimately look to their performance as their savior. And we all do it. And, and, and it's like functionally, is this not the same as an unbeliever? Here's what an unbeliever says, I don't, I don't want Jesus. You know what you say with religion? I don't want Jesus. I do it just fine. I may put a little Jesus bow on the top of it. But religion at his heart is trusting in self and not Christ. Here's what a guy named Richard Loveless said. I love this. I hope we hear this this morning. He says this, only a fraction of the present body of professing Christians, so he's talking about us, only a fraction, are solidly appropriating the justifying work of Christ in their lives. Many have a theoretical commitment to this doctrine, but in their day-to-day existence, they rely on their sanctification for their justification. Keep that up there for a minute. Here's what he's saying. Most of us profess Christ, but we also have a checklist. It's a little bit different. What's on that? Come to church, give some money, don't cuss. And depending how we do that checklist is how we feel about a relationship with God. Anyone relate to that besides me? Okay, just me. All right. Well, woe is me, not us. All right. We all have this blood running through us. We look to our performance for our justification. See, religion at its core is man-centered. The gospel is Christ-centered. And that's the problem with the Pharisees and why Jesus goes after them here is their whole doctrine, their whole religion was man-centered, not Christ-centered. They did good things. And let's make sure we hear this. Like the Pharisees weren't doing like bad sinful. They, they weren't out having crazy parties on, on Friday nights. Like they were doing a bunch of good things. The problem is they were doing these good things from the wrong motivation. And this is, where, this is where I was like, oh, woe is me, okay? Is it, so let me give you an example of that. Like, what's that look like? We could pick anything. Let's, let's pick this. Sexual purity, something we, we talk a lot about here, and it's something that, if we're honest, every single one of us have, have deal with at some level. We can, as, as people who love God, say, I want to pursue sexual purity because that's what God's called me to do. But we could be doing this good thing from a totally bad motivation and really miss the whole point. Where God would say, I could care less about that. Let me, let me give you an example. So in my battle for sexual purity, if, if my motivation for that is, I want to look good to my circle of friends. That is a religious thinking based on pride. I want to look good. Where's the focus? Let me hear you. Me, self, I want to look good to them. So I can make all kinds of leaps and bounds in sexual purity, and if it's for that motivation, I think God's like, I don't care. <laughs> Let me give you another one. I want to, sexual purity, okay, I'm going to fight this. Why? Because I feel bad and shameful when I mess up there. Where's the focus? Self. So I want to I have this cup that's clean on the outside because I don't like how it makes me feel on the inside. See how subtle this is? A good thing with just a twist in there makes it about self. Or how about I'm going to pursue sexual purity because if I don't, God will punish me. What's the motivation there? Joy or fear? Fear. It's like this this is a tricky thing. Like our default, every single one of us, our default position is religion. And to live in the freedom of the gospel is to put us in ourselves a rhythm where we completely reorient our heart back to the center because you and I will drift to the extremes. So let's close. I'm going to close with some questions. And I'm going to invite you to wrestle with these questions. I've been wrestling with them this week. So thinking about how religion kind of takes shape in our life. Because here's the reality. I'm going to sit down and we're going to have some coffee. I just don't have any coffee up here. Um, because I get, one of the things I love about this job, I get to sit across from many of you. 
uh, over the years and just talk and talk about life and, and talk about some things that are hard. And uh, as I talk to people, one of the things that I've learned is I'm convinced that most of us fall into religion most of the time. Because the things that you say as we talk kind of reveal that you're basing your staying with God on your performance. Like a quote you've heard me say a lot of times, I don't know who said it, so now I just pretend that I did. Um, here's a quote, many Christians, most Christians, are guilt-ridden and insecure because they believe their standing with God is based on the most recent religious performance. Listen, I love you all. How many times have I said across from you and the look on your face is one of shame and guilt and God hates me Why? Because I messed up this week. And, and me too. I'm not saying you, me, me too. Like our default pattern is religion. Most Christians, not some, not a few, most Christians are guilt-ridden insecure. Like I believe some of you, I believe many of you want to do some awesome things. I believe God's placed some vision inside of some of you of things you want to do in the city, in this church, but you're afraid to step into it because of that thing that you keep struggling with. You know what it is, that thing. And so it prevents you. And you sit back, no, I can't. How could I lead anyone else if I'm, it's religion, it's religious mindset. Here's some questions I'd invite you to wrestle with. Maybe wrestle, talk about these in your city groups. First question, where do I attempt to merit the favor of God by works? Ask yourself that. Where, where am I trying to make God proud of me? For some of you, it's coming to church today. I came here today, it's like, man, I'm going to get one more little punch in my little punch card in heaven, right? For some of you, maybe that's giving. Like, I hope you give generously and, and joy, but I don't want you to give. Hear me, I don't want your money if it's trying to earn God's favor. Don't want it. Where are you trying to earn God's favor by works? Here's, a, here's another question, because this is part of religion. Where is there an overemphasis on some things in Scripture, leaving a lack of emphasis on others? Let me say it again. Where is there overemphasis on some things in Scripture, leaving a lack of emphasis somewhere else? Because this is the thing about the Pharisees. Remember, they overemphasize how much you give and, and all this thing they were giving. They neglected mercy and justice. Okay, so for some of us... Um, it's a young crowd, like we're passionate about social justice and we love the idea of helping the poor and going and working a soup, like doing all these great things. But here's the danger, we get so zealous there that we say, well, I don't have to give anything financially myself. So here's an overemphasis on one to the neglect of the other. Or the opposite, some of you are like, well, I'll write a check, but I don't really ever get my hands dirty. It's a religious system based on I decide what I want to do and what I don't want to do. Here's another question. Where am I giving myself a pass on parts of the Bible that I just don't want to do? Yeah, this is a question that wrecked me too. Where am I giving myself a pass on parts of the Bible that I just don't really want to do? Another question. Is there a practice of confession in my life? Because I believe one of the best marks of when I'm living in this religious mindset is confession to me becomes a bad word. And I don't mean confession, dear God, I, I said this, please, no. I mean confession to another believer that says, hey, here's who I really am. Like vulnerability, the parts I don't want to talk about. When I'm living in a system of religion, the last thing I want to do is show any sort of weakness. Because it's based on me. When I'm living the gospel, I see confession as this actually a really beautiful thing that draws me closer to God and even closer to the people I'm confessing to. In a healthy covenant community, that confession should, 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 should come out should come out naturally. I was talking to someone this week, and uh, someone that had to confess some pretty tough things that kind of got caught. Um, and went through a season of just confession and some tough, some tough stuff. And, and here's what he says. 
He says, you'll never believe confession is a good word until you've actually had to do it. Because here's what he learned. As he confessed the thing that he didn't want to, he actually found grace and love and forgiveness and compassion from God and from those around him. It's actually a beautiful thing. But I'm telling you, when I'm living in religion, confession is the last thing that I do. Now the gospel would invite me, and we say this, the gospel, if the gospel's true, you have nothing to hide. Right, if it's true, think of it, if it's true that God accepts you, not based on your performance, but Christ, what do you have to hide? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Here's why we're passionate about this, why we talk about this all the time. I'm so glad this fell on the first year, Sunday of the month, because here's what happens in church life, kind of right in the fall and then in the spring, there's always a group of people like, I'm going to get back in church and I'm going to do this thing. I want to raise my kids in church, which I'm glad you're here. But I want you to hear me. This mindset that somehow you can earn God's approval by coming to church, it is death. It will zap your soul. And I can tell you that because I lived it. It will kill you. It will steal your freedom. It will steal your joy. It will make no one want to be around you. It will kill you. So New Year, 2019, we're here. Starting a kind of a new year of, of church life. I pray we see this passage today as this great mercy and gift of God to us. Right? And I hope you've seen today, we all are the Pharisee. <laughs> and we all have this blood running through us. But I hope you saw this. Because it, it's an important part of this story. Jesus knew who this guy was, right? Is that fair? He knew who he was. He knew what his beliefs were. He knew all this. How do we start the story? Jesus went and reclined at the table with him. Jesus even pursues a self-righteous religious Pharisee like you. And here's the invitation this morning. Let's come to the table right down here. And this table is not about you and what you've done. It's about what Jesus, about Jesus and what he has done. That's the invitation this morning. So to a self-righteous Pharisee, here's what I don't want you to sit back like, oh, I suck. Oh, I'm so, yeah, you do. You're right. But now we come to the table and now we celebrate the grace of God. You see the difference? Because the danger again is, so, oh man, I suck. I'm a self-righteous Pharisee. I got to go do something to make up for it. <laughs> you end up doing the same thing. No, you're right. Guilty is charged. We're all in this together. We all try to earn our, behavior, earn our way to God at some times. So here's the call. Let's come to the table together. Let's remind ourselves together that our faith, is, our salvation is based on Christ, not us. That's what we do this morning. We reorient our hearts right here. So as you come to this table this morning, may you see the beautiful invitation of Jesus to repent from trying to earn it. As you take the bread and dip in the cup, may you understand that you're accepted by God based on Jesus' death. And as you walk away, may you continue to repent of, of sin and what leads you away from God and even religion, trying to earn his favor. We come to the table together as an invitation from Jesus. Let's pray.